And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hello, I'm Matt Orsat, Senior Director of Capital Markets Policy, CFA Institute. Welcome to the Sustainability Story, a podcast hosted by CFA Institute, where we talk to thought leaders in the ESG and sustainable investor world to help investors understand the world of environmental, social, and governance investment and analysis. Curtis Ravenel is a Senior Advisor to former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, COP26 Finance Advisor, and UN Special Envoy for Climate Finance and a founding member of the Secretariat for the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. Thanks for joining us today, Curtis. It's, uh, it's always good to see you. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, I want to start off uh, telling our, our listeners a little about uh, TCFD. Uh, you've been involved with that since inception. A lot of people are, are hearing a lot more about it. Uh, some of our listeners are just coming to it brand new and, and want to know what it is and how to use it. So what is TCFD? Where have we been with it? Where are we now? And, and where are things going? Well, thanks, Matt. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak to the CFA Institute um, listeners. So I appreciate you inviting me onto the show to talk about it. So TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure. And this task force was initiated uh, by the FSB, which is the Financial Stability Board. Now, the Financial Stability Board is made up of central bankers and other regulators from the G20 countries. Um, and they are charged with looking at systemic risk in the financial sector. And the G20 asked the FSB to look at climate potential climate risk in the financial sector back in 2015. And at the time, the chair of the FSB was Mark Carney and his uh, plan for uh, responding to that request was to create a private sector led, what we like to say for the market by the market, group of representatives from the G20 across all sectors, um, um, uh, geography, and as well as roles to come up with recommendations for disclosure that helped inform better underwriting, lending, and investment decision-making and created um, enough information for regulators to take a view on whether or not there is a concentration of carbon-related assets in the financial sector. So that was the charge. But just, and, just, um, just, just, just to interrupt for a second. And when was that? Just how old is you know? Give that people was twenty fifteen. We launched right. in Paris of twenty fifteen. Right. Um, and like all good task force, it was only supposed to last eighteen months, and here we are, <laughs> six years later, and we're right. we're still going. Um, we released our original recommendations and supplemental guidance on implementation in mid twenty seventeen, and they were structured 
um, we, first of all, you know, there's been a lot of good work done in this space already. Um, and so we released a, uh, our recommendations based on a lot of existing work that had been out there um, in mid 2017. And it's structured around what we call four pillars, governance, strategy, risk, metrics, and targets. And the reason that we structured it that way was, uh, there are a couple of reasons. One was that is generally how firms manage their business anyway. Right, right, and we right. thought it was very important that climate not be some separate process that's different from the way firms manage and operate. I think boards and senior management are already uh, quite taxed with their time. And the key was to sort of integrate climate into those four pillars because those four pillars are already existing um, business, that they really are how businesses plan their strategy, risk management, financial planning, and all the rest of it. And so we wanted to integrate it. Um, the, the, the difference, I think, between the TCFD and formerly uh, other efforts on, around climate disclosure is we were hyper-focused on financial materiality. So right. most of the previous disclosure either standards or frameworks were really focused on how a company impacted climate as opposed to how climate might impact a company. And I think that that was really important distinction. Um, there was also, it was frankly written in a, in a clear, concise way with the target audience being senior executives and boards from uh, across the economy and across the world. So there wasn't as much climate speak to be frank. Right. Um, and so it became very accessible. Now, I, I won't kid ourselves and say, because it was the financial stability board, and especially the financial community is quite aware of who they are, because they're their regulators. Um, we jokingly call even though the TCFD was is and still is a voluntary uh, set of recommendations. It's, it's from your regulator, so uh, I call it voluntold um, <laughs> to take a hard look at it. Yeah. Um, and so that I think got a lot of traction, not to mention the two protagonists really, you know, Mark Carney, who was not only chair of the Financial Stability Board, but head of the Bank of England and also previously head of the Bank of Canada. And then Michael Bloomberg, who was appointed to be the chair of it. And I think both of those uh, individuals are very well known in the business financial communities. And I think that helped elevate it. Now, let me let me talk to where we started and where we are today. Um, you know, I've worked on a lot of uh, initiatives over, over the years and many with you. Um, this one has taken off in a way that I frankly didn't expect and I don't think anyone from the task force did. Um, from, from when we released the recommendations until about a year ago, we slowly gained recognition and support from financial business and policy communities. We have about 2,300 supporters that support the TCFD. We've seen a steady increase in disclosure based on the TCFD recommendations. And most importantly, and most recently, the G7 in its communique put out last month. That's right. You know, de uh, declared that all of those members would work towards a path to mandatory disclosure based on the TCFD, and they are now supporting the IFRS um, International Sustainability Standards Board creation. The IFRS has uh, announced that they would look closely at creating an International Sustainability Standards Board, and that they would start with climate 
and then they, they would start um, on base using the foundation of the TCFD to do their work. And for those US-based folks who don't know, the IFRS is in 144 countries and is the parent entity of the International Accounting Standards Board, which most jurisdictions use with the exception of the US. Of course, right. we have the FAF and FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Board. Um, but the SEC, as everyone probably likely knows who's interested in this topic, are considering rules themselves this fall um, and have signaled that they too would try to align with the ISSB work and use TCFD as the foundation. So um, the, needless to say, those of us who've been involved with TCFD are proud um, and ecstatic. Now the TCFD is not a standard, it's a set of recommendations. So turning those into a standard are gonna be, um, is, is a different piece of work. We are on a technical working group within the IFRS to help them do that. We're in constant contact with the SEC to answer their questions around this. And of course, we've worked a lot with Europe who has integrated the TCFD into their uh, reporting directive. So uh, momentum is an understatement. We are really moving quite quickly here. Well, you, you stole a little bit of my next question. I was gonna talk about how you know, TCFD uh, isn't necessarily a standard, even though you know in the world we, we live in and we talk about, it's, it's always often referred to as a standard. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about most of our listeners are investors, uh, you know, except you know, unfortunate friends and family I'm going to reach out to, to to listen to the podcast, so they might listen to it once. But it's mostly going to be investors. How are investors using this using TCFD? Is it mainly an engagement tool, or how do you? I, I've been hearing, you know, people talk about using TCFD. You know, going around back when we could go around the world before the pandemic. Uh, and I was I was heartened to hear people talking about SASB and TCFD and using it. But how are investors use it, and how are they meant to use it? Just because our 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 audience will be interested mostly in that. No, it's a, it's a great point. Uh, another one of the fundamental principles of of when we developed the recommendation is we had to balance the needs of the user um, against the you know practical. Uh, nature of, of the, the, the preparer, right? So you needed a balance between, you know, if you ask any investor what they would like a company to disclose, they're going to say everything um, right. and then I'll decide what's useful. So, so you know, the, the TCFD membership was a mix mixture of users and preparers. So we sought to get that balance right. And I think we did. You know, the use case um, for TCFD is, you know, there. I think there's a misunderstanding in, outside of the financial community that investors are some monolith. Um, they are using the TCFD in many different ways. Um, there is, and, and companies are using it to disclose. Again, it's intended to be flexible and scalable. So some companies provide some qualitative disclosure. Others really go hardcore into the quantitative bit. Yeah. Um, I think it is very much used. Um, by investors, the TCFD disclosures to determine how a company is thinking about climate risk and opportunity. Is it strategically uh, embedded into their processes or not? And so um, I think the qualitative and quantitative are super important. Uh, one of the things we like to say is both for the preparer and the user is a bit of a journey. This is a fast moving field. The TCFD framework helps frame it, but there's a lot of other work like SASB and others that provide more granularity, more sectoral specificity, 
uh, more metrics, you know, hardcore metrics and targets. Um, and, and I think TCFD is a great high level framing, uh, but I do think you need to complement that with, with, with disclosures like from SASB and others to complement that work. It's really important. And so, you know, one of the things, not only just engagement, but really looking at capital spend, you know, if, if you're in a high resource intensive uh, industry, where are you spending your capital? Are you spending yeah. your capital on more resource intensive stuff or are you diversifying into uh, more low carbon solutions? You know, where are you spending capital with regard to resilience of your infrastructure versus products and services? What are you seeing in the market with regard to um, policy and technology risk? You know, those will be dependent on sectors and jurisdictions. And so at the end of the day, the investor wants to glean from the TCFD, how thoughtful are these, these firms being? Um, and as I always remind the preparer is, um, if you don't own your own narrative, then the user of that information is going to make up a narrative for you. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, having been an analyst in the past myself, there's nothing I loathe more than an empty spreadsheet cell. So uh, the more information the preparers can give, the better. Otherwise, you know, we live in a hyper-transparent world with big data, um, machine learning, natural language processing, and uh, assumptions will be made by the analysts uh, about where these folks are in the position with regard to their peers. Uh, and so I always encourage preparers to really push. And you've seen a lot of activity within the investor community, specifically Climate Action 100, which I think is up to something like 430 investors now that have targeted some of the largest resource intensive sectors uh, and companies and asking them to disclose against TCFD uh, and has really pushed the envelope. And we've, as a result, we've seen a lot of increased disclosure, but I will still, will TCFD will put out a status report as it does every year, but that monitors progress against the four recommendations, four pillars and 11 total recommendations. And uh, I've seen the preliminary results and why it's, while it's improved, it's not there yet. Um, we don't have uh, really robust, no one is really disclosing at a sector level anyway, more than 50% of the TCFD uh, recommended disclosures. And so that's why I think you're seeing this push to mandatory. Uh, the need for climate uh, action and solutions is now. And so I think there's a, a, a we need more activity. Um, and so you're, that's why you're seeing all this policy push. Yeah. Well, we're going to get back to that in a later question, but I want to go back a little bit in time when uh, when we had more hair and darker hair. Uh, I remember meeting you about 16, 17 years ago uh, in the Bloomberg offices when you were you were at Bloomberg and you were charged with starting off uh, ESG data gathering for Bloomberg. It was like 2004, 2005, sometime around that. So you are well placed to, to answer the question of and, and have seen where ESG data has come from, uh, where it is now, uh, and and what's still you know broader than climate, broader broader than what TCFD is doing, uh, you know, is are we getting closer to where we need to be uh, around ESG data, uh, and and where is that going as well? Yeah, ESG data, Matt, has come a long way, and you and I have have seen it from the start. Bloomberg launched its inaugural ESG product 
really back in 2009, and we were the first sort of mainstream financial information service company to do that. At the time, I remember being very excited because we were going to collect ESG data from a thousand companies. Mm -hmm. And that was a big deal. Uh, And the data was inconsistent. Uh, The different methodologies used to disclose were different. Um, Of course, this is what financial information companies do is they try to parse the data and try to normalize it, make it more comparable. But a thousand companies I thought was a big deal. Um, Today, the Bloomberg product covers, I think, about 14,000 companies. Uh, And, you know, we've seen a significant proliferation of every major data provider is in the business. And I think every uh, investment firm, whether it's a bank or um, an asset manager or owner, they all uh, have an ESG strategy today. And I think that's the result of a number of things. I think part of it is I'd like to think that TCFD and SASB had a a big uh, part in that because of the focus on financial materiality. And I'll say this from Bloomberg's point of view, the reason um, that we, when I was there, we focused on TCFD and SASB was because they were both focused on financial materiality. And to be frank, I thought I can sell this to the entire market. Right. I can depoliticize this issue. Everyone cares about financial materiality, especially if there's a potential impact on financial performance. And that is something that is um, you know, agnostic to ideology or issue development. And so as the world uh, has moved forward, we've all seen, uh, and even Mark Carney talks about this, COVID and climate have really exposed us to the environmental and social risks that impact companies and by extension, financial performance. Um, And so it really is a a much more mainstream issue now. And of course, the asset owners have been the primary original drivers of all of this. Um, They are universal owners, meaning they own everything. They have extremely long investment horizons uh, because they have to pay the pension fund, say, for example, of a a teacher in California who's 35 today and won't retire for 30 years. Right. And when they look at their exposure to real estate or timber or ag or any of these things or, or oil and gas, uh, they see risk in the future, whether it's transition risk in oil and gas or physical risk in real estate. And so they're realizing that they need to have a longer view and they're asking their asset managers to, to do that. So I, I for, for one, and I'm sure you feel the same, um, am heartened by the progress made on ESG. Um, and I really think that some smart people, the, the financial community has figured out how to use this data in many different ways. I knew it was becoming a real thing when some of our Bloomberg clients wouldn't tell us how they were using the data because they thought they had a competitive advantage <laughs> in figuring it out. That to yeah. me is best. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, I remember that driving a lot of the demand for the data. Uh, early on is, you know, the the earlier that people started to realize these are material issues that I can have a competitive advantage, I, not, I'm at Orsag, but I, these firms be, have a competitive advantage if I understand this uh, and my analysis, my anal- analysts understand this, my portfolio managers understand this because they have a better picture uh, of the of that sector or the market than their competitors do. They're dismissing it or weren't looking at it. I think that's right. I, I think some of it also was driven by the rise of sort of intangible value yep. and spread between 
um, you know, market cap or book value. Uh, and some of that ESG is very helpful in identifying intangible value. It's not the complete solution, but it's a, certainly an important component of it. Um, and so not only that, with the rise of information, I mean, bad news, ESG risks, if you if it's a recall or it's um, some kind of employee issue or it's a spill in the case of chemicals or something else, like that information is shared so quickly and can have such an impact on the price um, of, of, uh, of an issuer's stock or bond. Um, those, those issues now, knowing, having a company who discloses that they have policies and practice are generally seen to be more resilient to those kinds of bad news if, if they're able to demonstrate that they've got a handle on those issues. So I think it's, it's again, quantitative and qualitative. I think a number of analysts um, have told me in the past that they, it's really should be, ESG is really G. It's about good governance and is a firm positioned to manage itself well in a complex, increasingly complex world where it's not just about financial performance overall, but it's also about how they manage their, their broader stakeholders. And we've seen this uh, really evolve within the capital markets quite significantly. It's been there for a while, but it's really sort of reached escape velocity in the last couple of years. All right, I want to move on to something we talked about a little bit before. You mentioned before where policymakers and regulators are going around ESG. You've seen this uh, first and foremost in Europe, the European Commission looking at this. Now the SEC is, is tackling this. Their comment period on climate disclosure, uh, climate disclosures uh, just closed, and they're looking to probably make rules in the fall. We're, we're talking in July of 2021. Um, where do you see that going uh, globally? Uh, in the next months, years, uh, and what can what impact can investors expect on a policy side, regulatory side? Yeah, there's uh, you know there's in in my mind there are sort of three steps to 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 mandatory for lack of a better term, or three steps that really will cement this as a mainstream financial issue. One is private regulation, and that's what we've seen to date where we've got 2,300 TCFD supporters. You've got the rise of the principles for responsible investing. You have Climate Action 100. These are all private initiatives that have changed the norms, basically, of the in, uh, in investing community and how they use this information. It's expected, right? Mm -hmm. The next phase is, is what I would call regulatory approach. So, um, the SEC, for example, would be an example of a regulatory approach. The more comprehensive and sort of um, uh, full bore approach is a legislative approach, which is right. what you've seen in Europe. So the SEC, let's remember, only has jurisdiction over publicly traded firms, not private companies. Right. Whereas in Europe, the legislative approach is to cover all firms that have over 500 employees or do $50 million in revenue more. And that captures a much, much broader um, range of, of businesses around what they have to disclose. So you've got this, that sort of tiered approach that I described. The other thing to remember is, you know, don't be confused about the fact that just because if you don't do business, if you're not a European domiciled company or financial institution, you won't be covered by this. It's anyone who does business right. in the region. So, Europe, given it's a large market, 
um, any company that has an international footprint is likely and is of any scale is likely going to be caught up in this in that legislative approach. And the SEC, of course, many firms, even the ones that are not domiciled here, do file and register in the US because they want to be traded on, on US exchanges. And so they'd be subject to the SEC's approach. Now, if you're worried about fragmentation, which is one of the great concerns, you know, good information is the lifeblood of all good decision making, investing decision making, business decision making policy. There, Europe, so the big games in town are, of course, the European effort, the IFRS effort, and the SEC effort. But between all of that, you've got pretty much global coverage. And they all recognize that a, a deeply fragmented approach will be problematic and put friction into capital allocation decision-making and create all kinds of burdens on not only preparers, but also users and having to parse different information sets. So that's why we are pleased at the TCFD to see that all of them are using the TCFD as the foundation. And I think what you'll see is what what we call a building block approach. And you're going to see Europe, Europe has certain policy objectives that it's trying to achieve, and it's going to use this disclosure to help do that. So some of their disclosure beyond may go beyond TCFD and be in addition to on top of. And the IFRS, of course, even though it's a global standard, um, currently the, their um, IASB standard is, a, as, is used in 144 jurisdictions, you know, their sustainability standard will have to be adopted uh, independently of that by those jurisdictions. They're likely to add their own flavor of things that they need for their own jurisdiction. So the key is to get a core set of information that everybody can use. And then you're still gonna see some fragmentation above and beyond that for investors. Um, but over time, there is a strong commitment within all of those groups to work together to, after all, Investing is generally a global activity. We have a global capital markets. Uh, and so there's a real desire to sort of push that forward. F as far as timeline goes, Matt, I mean, this is soon. Mm -hmm. This is coming soon. I think the IFRS, you know, the SEC will write some rules uh, this fall, as you indicated. Uh, the IFRS will put out a draft exposure standard. They will announce the creation of this board probably by COP26. Um, and then I would expect to see an initial draft exposure sometime in mid 2022. Uh, and of course, Europe is, is legislating their disclosure requirements now with the expectation that by 2022 and 2023, depends on different pieces of it, it'll be disclosure. So certainly within the next uh, few years, those major jurisdictions, my guess is that by 2025, most of the world will be covered by some form of disclosure um, on climate specifically, but also on broader ESG. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's great. That's great to hear. All right. I want to take a couple minutes quickly to talk about uh, this crazy thing you've taken on of uh, helping to organize COP26. Uh, you know, if you could tell our listeners about what's going on in COP26, what to expect and what does success look like coming out of COP26? Yeah. So for the uninitiated, um, you know, there is a COP, it's a conference of parties is what that stands for every year to talk about climate ambition. And it's a government run thing, but every five years, there's a big one. So the last one was, the last big one was in Paris in 2015, where we reached the Paris Agreement, which was essentially to try to keep the world 
uh, below two degrees uh, warming. And each country made a commitment, a voluntary non-binding commitment to reduce their emissions from a baseline year uh, and, and came up with targets. They're expected to do the same uh, this year. What's happened since Paris really, and Paris was the first real push was, there's what we call the state actors, which we just discussed, but then there's the non-state actors. And I am working um, within the non-state actor arena. It's official. I, I am a senior advisor to Mark Carney, who is an advisor to Boris Johnson on climate finance um, and is a UN special envoy on climate finance. And the goal is to bring the private sector more, more specifically for my remit, the private, uh, the financial community into the COP process. Now, what does that mean? Essentially what that means is the goal is to integrate climate into all financial analysis. That's the big goal. How are we going to do that? We've created a number of work streams. One is around reporting, one is around risk, one is on returns and one is on mobilization. Mm -hmm. On the reporting work stream, it's a path to mandatory for TCFD. On the risk, it is around scenario analysis and having central banks um, test their own book against plausible future states of scenarios and also stress test the financial institutions that they have jurisdiction over um, against those scenarios. Um, on the return side, it's really about transition planning, um, portfolio alignment with financial flows. That was one article 2.1c. It says that uh, we will encourage the financial community to align their lending, underwriting, uh, and investing activity with a two degree or lower world. And that means coming up with a pathway, looking at how financed emissions work. And to, to do this, we created something called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which basically has a number of different alliances underneath it. And that's Zero Asset Owner Alliance, Asset Manager Alliance, Banking Alliance, Insurance Alliance, where they've gotten together and agreed uh, to commit to net zero by 2050 to develop transition plans on their financing activities that and disclose those, how they're progressing against those plans every year going forward. And there are a number of work streams that are looking at how they can help finance this transition within the real economy acknowledging in the end that it requires policy support and right. real economy to do work itself. And so uh, needless to say, by me laying out all those different initiatives, there's a lot of work going on. Yeah. Uh, and the one ask that I have of your listeners, if you work in a financial institution that has not made a net zero commitment, um, I would ask you to be an advocate to do that. Um, I've, we've seen this movie before, as we say, and I would expect that like TCFD, um, over time, you know, certainly by 2030, this will be mandatory. Um, I know that might be a big prediction, but I want you to go back in time uh, when we get to that point, Matt, uh, and, and see if I was right. And so my advice always on things like this is same with TCFD is like regulators are giving people an opportunity to test run this stuff and to have input into um, how this should be looked at, what are the best practices, and it's better to uh, lead than to be dragged along, in my view. So, um, you know, making a net zero commitment if you're a financial institution 
is is not um, considered legitimate unless you're joining one of these uh, net zero alliances, which give you the guardrails and the credibility because they're sponsored by the UN. And you know, there's a big lot of worry. And actually, uh, sec, um, Commissioner Gensler is is looking at this as well on how you present and label your funds ESG and what is the criteria for disclosure and what's greenwashing versus legitimate. And so um, this is a this is the next phase of work I think is around uh, finance transition. And I, one last point I wanna make on this, Matt, and I think there's a real worry. We, we can't divest our way out of this. Uh, climate change is an undiversifiable risk. And so, you know, we, last thing we want to do is divest. I would argue we'd like to invest, but you want to invest in companies um, that have a credible um, and realistic um, and accountable transition plan. So engaging with your co companies, not to divest, but rather to engage with them to help them finance their transition. It's going to be expensive. You know, Mark Carney would say this is the greatest financial opportunity um, in our lifetime, likely, is this transition, if it's done right. But like any transition, there are winners and losers. And so let's hope that your listeners and all of us end up on the winning side, both for climate and for financial stability and economic opportunity. Thanks, Chris. I think that's a great, that's a great place to stop uh, the conversation. Uh, we could talk for forever, of course, and we have. Uh, but uh, we will we'll, we'll respect the time of our listeners. Before you go, I want to ask you one thing to give our listeners a little bit of homework. Uh, on these topics, what, what, what should they be reading? What are you reading? What are something you could recommend for them to read? So sadly, I've become quite obsessed, Matt, and I don't read um, anything but climate and sustainable finance stuff these days. Um, you know, and I may be pitching my own book as a former Bloomberg employee, but I do think Bloomberg Green um, which I helped launch is really good is because it has a daily opinion piece from some of its very smart writers that they hired to look at the real meaty issues. Bloomberg Green, Environmental Finance, Responsible Investor, those are really good sources for you. If you really want to understand what's going on in the broader sustainable finance and ESG space, those are excellent. Um, and they really help you understand who the players are, where the policy is going, what are some of the sticky issues, what are the trends. Um, it's, 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 it's really good reading, all of it. Thanks, Curtis. That's a great recommendation. And thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.